Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am really thrilled to welcome all of you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I want to make sure that any of you who has not yet seen the first Jewish Americans on our second floor uh, don't have to rush to see it. We've just extended the exhibition by another two weeks, but it is a truly remarkable show with some incredible documentation of an early community or early set of communities that uh, very few people are aware of. So come back during museum hours and, um, and see that exhibition if you haven't already. Tonight's program, Leaders in War, Dwight D. Eisenhower, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at New York Historical Society Lecture. Our great and visionary trustee and noted Lincoln and financial history scholar, Mr. Lewis E. Lehrman, is responsible for creating this series. And I want to acknowledge and thank Lewis Lehrman right now. And then I want to say, as always, first of all, how thrilled we are to, uh, to be able to bask in his uh, great glory, but also uh, tonight to add another credit, yet another credit to his very long roster by announcing the publication of Mr. Lehrman's new book, Churchill, Roosevelt and Company, Studies and Character and Statecraft. You can order it on Amazon. And uh, I, um, I give it my hearty endorsement and our speaker this evening has given it his already. Um, in fact, Mr. Lehrman will lecture on the book's subject right here in this auditorium on May 3rd, so please mark your calendars now. I'd also like to recognize and thank uh, other trustees in the audience this evening, our chair, Pam Schaffler. I want to thank Pam for her outstanding leadership at this institution. Thank you. And uh, other of Pam's colleagues on the board, Ravenel Curry, Beth Jader, Suzanne Peck, Joel Pickett, and Ira Unschuld. Thanks very much to Lou and to Pam and all of our trustees this evening. And Suzanne Peck. I think I said Suzanne. Okay, good. Said you twice, that's fine. Um, I also want to thank my colleague, Dale Gregory, for her fine work and all Chairman's Council members in attendance. So tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted this evening on note cards. You should have received a note card and pencil as you are entering the auditorium. Staff members are still circulating in the auditorium, and they will also be collecting cards later in the program. There will be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for sale in our NY History store. We are pleased, indeed, to welcome Andrew Roberts, the Distinguished Lehrman Fellow at New York Historical Society, back to our stage. Andrew Roberts is currently visiting professor in the War Studies Department at King's College London. He's the recipient of many honors and awards, including in 2012, the William Penn Prize. In 2014, the Grand Prix of the Fondation Napoleon. In 2015, the Los Angeles Times Biography Prize. And in 2016, the Bradley Prize. In 2007, he delivered the prestigious White House Lecture. Andrew Roberts is also the 
author or editor of 12 books. And now, as I welcome Andrew Roberts to the stage, I ask that please make sure anything that makes noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speaker to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to be invited to address you this evening uh, to give this penultimate um, lecture in the series and to um, thank you very much indeed. I did notice that one or two people had already handed in um, questions. <laughs> a little bit nerve-wracking considering I haven't said a word about, um, about Dwight Eisenhower yet, but um, there we go. On the afternoon of Saturday the 8th of August 1953, Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery visited the Prime Ministerial Country House, Chequers, in Buckinghamshire to spend the weekend with Sir Winston Churchill. And over dinner that evening, they discussed what one of those present, the uh, Prime Minister's private secretary, Jock Colville, termed, quote, the five capital mistakes unquote, that the Americans had made in World War II. It was a favorite topic of conversation for Montgomery, um, perhaps the favorite, uh, but one that the committed Atlanticist Churchill hardly ever indulged in, partly perhaps because one of America's most important planners of operations during World War II, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, was president of America at the time. Modern tea, however, had no such reticence, saying, quote, I would not class Ike as a great soldier in the true sense of the word. He might have become one had he ever had the experience of ex exercising direct command of a division, corps, and army, which unfortunately did not come his way. Monty was fully supportive, um, supported in this uh, deeply uncharitable view by the reliably rebarbative Field Marshal Lord Allenbrook, um, who had been Chief of the Imperial General Staff from December 1941 until 1946, and who had written in his diary on the 15th of May 1944. Do you remember that date? Um, the main impression I gathered was that Eisenhower was no real director of thought, plans, energy, or direction, just a coordinator a good mixer, a champion of inter-allied cooperation, and in those respects, few can hold the candle to him. But is that enough, or can we not find all the qualities of a commander in one man? Now, that had been the day, ladies and gentlemen, 15th of May, um, 1944, that Eisenhower had briefed King George VI, Churchill, and all the senior chiefs of staff and commanders at St. Paul's School in Hammersmith in London on the looming Operation Overlord. Not for nothing was Alan Brooks' nickname in the army, Colonel Shrapnel. <laughs> now, we all like Ike. So to forestall any understandable outbreak of anglophilia, uh, sorry, anglophobia in this room uh, tonight as a result of those remarks by Britons, I want to point out that the charges against Eisenhower are not only leveled by my countrymen, but also by distinguished American historians. The double Pulitzer Prize winning uh, historian Rick Atkinson 
recently, uh, who wrote that uh, that three volume uh, history of the uh, American Army in World War II, recently delivered the Harmon Memorial Lecture to the U.S. Air Force Academy. It's a very distinguished lectureship. The Harmon, um, pretty much all major um, military historians have uh, given it since uh, since nineteen since it was instituted in nineteen fifty nine. Well, I say, um, I say all of them. Actually, there is one person who hasn't been asked to. Uh, do anything. Um, and uh, and in the uh, in the very distinguished Harmon Memorial Lecture, um, Rick Atkinson said this of Ike: He was not a particularly good field marshal, and he was not a great captain. By what he means, a great captain, capital G. Um, capital G, capital C, one of the seven great captains of, of history as they're, as they're known. Um, frankly, it gnawed at him. He had a lifelong ambition for Hannibal, who of course was one of the great uh, seven great captains, and he longed to orchestrate a double envelopment like Cannae. Um, double envelopments uh, is just about the best thing that you can do on a battlefield. Napoleon did two of them as well. He also is one of the great captains. Um, and um, Atkinson went on, but he lacked the gift of seeing a battlefield in, in depth, spatially and temporally, or of inexorably imposing his operational will on an enemy. There are repeated examples where he simply did not grasp the battle, unquote. As I mentioned, in common with, I suspect, almost everyone in this room, I like Ike. Uh, it's impossible not to, with his cheery countenance, his relentlessly can-do optimism, and his insistence on absolute equality between Americans and Britons on his staff. I don't mind anyone calling someone a son of a bitch, he famously told his staff, but I will not have them calling them a British or an American son of a bitch. Um, on that occasion at St Paul's School, cited earlier, he had closed his remarks with the words, in half an hour, Hitler will have missed his one and only chance of destroying with a single well-aimed bomb the entire high command of the Allied forces. Rather marvellous on such a, a deeply, a profoundly important occasion like, uh, like the great briefing of the 15th of May uh, to have wound up with a, um, with a joke shows his innate uh, and wonderful sense of humour. Yet, however much one likes Ike, one must address the criticisms of him made by his British counterparts and by modern American historians such as Rick Atkinson, um, who, by the way, was also a shortlisted author for the New York Historical Society Lehrman Institute Prize in Military History, uh, which I have the um, present honour of chairing. <laughs> I believe, I believe, by the way, it's the kind of post that leads to being invited to deliver the memorial <laughs> lecture um, at the US Air Force Academy. Um, so I'm told, anyhow. Um, so what were the so-called five capital mistakes made by the Americans in the Western theater of World War II that Churchill and Monty came up with that summer evening in 1953? To quote Colville, one, they had prevented Alexander getting to, that's uh, General Sir Harold Alexander, later Field Marshal Earl Alexander of Tunis. They had prevented Alexander getting to Tunis the first time when he could easily have done so. Two, they had done at Anzio what Stopford did at Suvla Bay, 
Stopford was a British general and Suvel Bay was the Dardanelles campaign in 1915, clung to the beaches and failed to establish positions inland as they could well have done. Uh, Churchill at this point said he wanted um, Anzio to be a mainly British operation. Three, they had insisted on Operation Anvil, thereby preventing Alexander from taking Trieste and Vienna. Four, Eisenhower had refused to let Monty, in Overlord, concentrate his advance on the left flank. He'd insisted on a broad advance, which could not be supported, and had thus allowed Rundstedt to counterattack on the Ardennes and had prolonged the war with dire political results to the spring of 1945. Five, Eisenhower had let the Russians occupy Berlin, Prague and Vienna, all of which might have been entered by the Americans. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, when one actually drills down into, when one really examines this um, formidable-sounding indictment sheet, much of its power slips away. One, it was Monty who let the Africa Corps escape after El Alamein. Um, his slow pursuit allowed the Germans time to defend Tunis. Although Alexander's was a different operation, Montgomery sounds like he was covering himself for something for which he was much more guilty than the Americans. Two, the Stopford analogy at Anzio was a good one and very Churchillian, relating as it does to the disaster at Suvla Bay on the Gallipoli Peninsula that clearly still rankled with Churchill nearly 40 years later. But the American general at Anzio, Mark Lucas, was sacked and Churchill was quite wrong to say that it was ever going to be a British operation, or even indeed a mainly British operation, as the US 5th Army was on the west coast of Italy and the British 8th Army on the east, and the Americans had the shipping and the available men. Three, true, Anvil was an unnecessary diversion, at least in my view, uh, and I know we've, we've argued about this on this stage uh, in the past with uh, my Marshall lecture quite happy to argue about it again, by the way, uh, ladies and gentlemen, as you all seem to have these endless cards. Um, <coughs> but um, uh, nonetheless, um, Anvil was an unnecessary diversion, but Alexander did take Trieste uh, eventually. Whether Alexander could have repeated Napoleon's 1797 campaign and marched on successfully on Vienna, sorry, Napoleon never actually reached Vienna on that campaign, uh, whether or not um, Alexander uh, was able to do so is highly debatable. And the Russians gave up Vienna on the day that they promised to. Marshall could be criticized in his selection of Mark Clark, whose uh, obsession with taking Rome before D-Day allowed the Germans to escape from Monte Cassino. Four. The main criticism of Eisenhower in late 1944 and early 1945 is that the broad front strategy left the Allies with nowhere near the what military um, strategists uh, call the Schwerpunkt or the point d'appui, the single point of main decisive effort. It's uh, this meant that scarce supplies were spread out thinly instead of being massed at a decisive point. The accusation some make is that being able or un unable or unwilling to choose between Montgomery, Patton and Bradley over who should lead the narrow thrust, he chose none of them. Yet this is unfair. Operation Market Garden, the, uh, the attack on Arnhem, was precisely such a narrow thrust and it comprehensively failed. The only time Eisenhower gave in to Monty on the broad front versus narrow thrust issue had ended in fiasco. 
So it was understandable if he was reluctant to try that again or to let Patton do the same in the south. He also needed to avoid another Ardennes, uh, Battle of the Bulge, by keeping up pressure all along the line and not allowing, in February or March 1945, any recurrence of what had happened in December 1944 and uh, January 1945 in the Ardennes. After the hard-won but undeniable uh, victory in the Battle of the Bulge, there was still hard fighting in February 1945 between the River Ruhr and the Rhine. Very bad weather grounded aircraft and, and flooded the fields. Quote, Eisenhower is to blame for the broad front strategy that stretched Allied lines so thin that Armour had little difficulty breaking through, writes an American biographer of his, uh, Gene Edward Smith, in an otherwise admiring biography, claiming that Ike should not have let the Germans get as far as they did before counterattacking. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, the Ardennes Offensive was a 39-divisional surprise attack carried out under complete radio silence. Uh, all the messages were passed from, um, from commander to commander uh, by motorbike. None of them were uh, sent over the air, so we couldn't, our boffins in Bletchley who were listening in to the uh, German uh, radio couldn't, uh, couldn't hear the commands for this uh, attack. Uh, it took place through three feet of snow with searchlights bouncing off the 100% cloud cover to turn night into day and prevent Allied air superiority from being brought to bear. No power on earth could have prevented the Wehrmacht getting to the Meuse. It took astonishing courage in places like Bastogne to slow their advance and prevent them from reaching the English Channel. Had Eisenhower adopted the alternative uh, strategy of deep, thin thrusts across the Rhine, um, the Allies would have been stretched even thinner. Number five, it's simply not true to say that Eisenhower let the Russians occupy Berlin, Prague, and Vienna, each of which had already been earmarked for the Russians by joint uh, Allied-Russian commissions starting even before Yalta. The Russians suffered over 80,000 casualties taking Berlin. And it's a myth to suppose that the Germans were going to lay down their arms before the Americans had they got there earlier. Personally and aside from all, quote, personally and aside from all logistical, tactical or strategic implications, Marshall wrote to Ike in April 1945, I would be loath to hazard American lives for purely political purposes, unquote. As Churchill's deputy military secretary, Sir Ian Jacob, put it, um, at lunch with me, uh, indeed, his idea was to bring the war to an end as quickly as possible, bring the boys home, and let the politicians pick up the pieces. It was an understandable reaction. General George Patton could be quite cutting about Eisenhower, jealously joking that the DD in Ike's name must stand for divine destiny. Um, because of his constant promotions, um, uh, which uh, happened without his having commanded any troops in the field. Yet Eisenhower was denied the chance of active service in World War I and had to command the American landings in North Africa, Operation Torch, in November 1942 from a cave in Gibraltar. So it's perfectly true that the first time he saw a shot fired in anger was when he shot a rat in his HQ at Caserta in Italy uh, in 1943. But most of the troops in Operation Torch hadn't seen a shot fired in anger either, and much of his insistence on good discipline 
stemmed from that knowledge. As supreme allied commander in Europe, Eisenhower had overall control of 4.5 million American and 1 million other allied troops in 91 divisions, 28,000 aircraft, 970,000 vehicles, and 18 million tons of supplies. At that level of command, war fighting was as much about... Um, uh, well, it was about so much more than just having um, been in combat in one's youth. Above all, it requires delegation at the sub-strategic and the tactical level, which in terms of natural justice means that the supreme commander cannot be blamed for every reverse, especially every reverse against an enemy as uh, formidable as the Wehrmacht. When considering Patton's malicious comments about his uh, commander. One must factor in Eisenhower's statement about Patton's famous face-slapping incident, that it, quote, raised serious doubts about his future usefulness as a commander, unquote. Yet Eisenhower hadn't sacked Patton, recognizing that generals of his quality were in short supply. Harder to defend are the criticisms, harder to defend than those uh, Checkers uh, criticisms, are the ones made by Atkinson, which concentrate, in his words, quote, uh, on when the Germans and Italians escaped from Sicily across the Straits of Messina in August 1943, when Eisenhower approved a harebrained scheme to drop the 82nd Airborne Division on Rome in September 1943, with the nearest substantial ground support force landing at Salerno 200 miles away. When he was with Omar Bradley and various missteps by the high command led to the part of the German force escaping from the so-called Falaise Gap in Normandy in August 1944, and when he failed to heed clear warnings about the importance of capturing the estuarial approaches to Antwerp, the River Scheldt, in addition to the city itself, so that when Allied forces captured this absolutely vital port intact in early, 19, early September 1944, the Germans kept the approaches and the port was useless for almost three more months, unquote. So that's the, uh, that's the Atkinson <coughs> rap sheet. Yet, it strikes me, and it's a, pretty, um, it's a pretty formidable one as well, yet it strikes me that the... Um, German escapes from such tight corners as the Messina Straits and Falaise Gap were an indication more of the continued discipline and professionalism of the Wehrmacht in retreat than any failure of Eisenhower's strategic sense, just as the German capacity for counterattack constantly had to be guarded against. The Straits of Messina are very small, and nothing like the English Channel, for example. The 82nd Airborne um, weren't, in the end, dropped on Rome, um, when last-minute intelligence proved that negotiations between General Taylor and Marshal Bodolio were a trap. Um, they were kept back, the 82nd, of course, for uh, Operation Overlord. A month before D-Day, the Air Commander-in-Chief of the operation of Operation Overlord, Air Chief Marshal Sir Trafford Lee Mallory, warned Eisenhower that the 82nd Airborne were headed to disaster on the projected landings in gliders on dangerous landing areas against tough German opposition uh, miles behind enemy lines on the uh, peninsula. Although he didn't agree with Lee Mallory's projections, sorry, he didn't disagree 
with Lee Mallory's projections. Eisenhower could not change the plan and wrote to him saying, quote, a strong airborne attack in the region indicated is essential to the success of the whole operation and it must go on. It was, and it did, and it seriously disrupted the German attempt to reinforce the peninsula, though of course at very high cost. The tardiness in freeing up the vital supply route along the Scheldt to Antwerp I believe can indeed be laid at Eisenhower's door. The amount of, this isn't a, uh, a, a tactical or a sub-strategic uh, decision, of course it's one of the most important strategic decisions of that stage of the war. Um, the amount of fuel that was consumed bringing ammunition, weapons, troops, supplies and equipment to the battlefields of northwestern France and subsequently Germany, all the way from the Mulberry Harbours. And one has to remember, of course, that one of the Mulberry Harbours was destroyed in a storm almost uh, immediately after D-Day. Um, that uh, extraordinary amount of, um, of uh, gasoline would have been cut in half had it um, all been able to come straight across the channel and down the Scheldt. In Eisenhower's defense in all his strategic decisions, um, what he was trying to do had never been done before in history. The integration of the Allied command structure was unprecedented. In the First World War, planning and execution had been let, left up to individual armies in individual sectors. So this was a revolutionary way for a campaign to be fought, where all decisions were taken um, in the name of the combined chiefs of staff made up of the chiefs of staff of the two uh, of the two countries, Britain and America, completely revolutionary. One can really you can go back to uh, Eugene and Marlborough. Um, to see uh, to see anything like the same thing, and of course that wasn't uh, that wasn't the same because it wasn't done at staff level. As Ch as Churchill put it in his memoirs, um, at no time has the principle of alliance between noble races been carried and maintained at so high a pitch. And this is the man who, of course, was the biographer of uh, of Marlborough, his great ancestor. It was a um, it was a, a, a a great statement to make about Anglo-American cooperation in the Second World War. And this is the advice that Ike gave Lord Mountbatten when he took over as Supreme Allied Commander of the Southeastern Asian Command, as quoted in Corelli Barnett's excellent essay in, uh, on Eisenhower in his very fine book, The Lords of War. He said this, quote, Never permit any problem to be approached in your staff on the basis of national interest. An Allied Commander-in-Chief must be self-effacing, um, quick to give credit, ready to meet the other fellow more than halfway, and absorb advice and must be willing to decentralise. He is, in a very definite sense, the chairman of the board, a chairman that has very definite executive responsibilities. The point I make is that while the setup may be somewhat artificial, and not always so clean-cut as you might desire, your personality and good sense must make it work. Eisenhower was a good chooser of men and was enormously helped in this by one of those choices, uh, Walter Beadle Smith, one of the great US Army chiefs of staff in your history. Although he was good at delegating Eisenhower, um, a vital prerequisite in such a job, he did not cede ultimate control. Indeed, one of his few resignation threats came two months before D-Day over the use of the bomber force that was softening up in the, uh, in the words of the day, softening up uh, targets in Normandy and the Pas de Calais. 
He made a few resignation threats to his diary, uh, which don't count. Um, but um, such as when he wrote, I am tiring of dealing with a lot of prima donnas. By God, you tell that bunch that if they can't get together and stop quarrelling like children, I'll tell the Prime Minister to get somebody else to run this damn war. Um, the mention of God was for emphasis rather than, um, rather than religion. He was the only man um, to have been elected to the American presidency without belonging to a church. As for his personal morality, Eisenhower's best biographer, Carlo Deste, makes a, out a very convincing case that his friendship with the driver, uh, his, his, his gorgeous driver, Kay Summersby, had not been a sexual one. One argument of Deste's, however, that I found unconvincing was that as Supreme Commander, Ike would not have found the time or the privacy to make love to the ravishing Miss Summersby. Um, ladies and gentlemen, a, a glance at the most famous and busy men in history shows that that is one thing for which they have always managed uh, to, uh, to find time. Um, the publication of Summersby's memoirs gave Montgomery a delicious opportunity to get his own back after some perceived slight connected to Eisenhower's book Crusade in Europe, when in November 1948, Montgomery wrote to Ike to ask him to be sent a copy of Summersby's book, um, her uh, autobiography, which, which alleged this affair, forcing Ike to reply that he hadn't read it, had no idea how to get hold of a copy, and dismissed, quote, all inquiries arising from inconsequential personal accounts of anything that was as big as the war was. Rather, rather fine uh, answer. <clears throat> General Patton once said, God deliver us from our friends. We can handle the enemy. And the senior Allied commanders were indeed prima donnas, with Patton himself vying with Montgomery as the worst of all. Bradley had total, quote, total disdain, quote, for Monty and contempt for Patton, who in turn was, quote, sickened, quote, unquote, when Monty became a field marshal. Monty, meanwhile, despised both Patton and Bradley. Um, despite constant and extreme provocations, Eisenhower somehow held the ring successfully until VE Day. And in an army where George Patton, Omar Bradley, Mark Clark, Albert Wedemeyer, and Orlando Ward all thoroughly detested the British, Ike actually liked us. Um, now, I can quite understand why Britons like Monty and Brooke might not be everyone's cup of tea, uh, or tiffin, as Eisenhower called it. By the time he left England, we'd also um, taught him to say petrol rather than gasoline. Um, but it was necessary that the person at the top did get on with his hosts. It irritated Americans hugely. Uh, Patton famously said, Ike is the best general the British have got. Criticism from the British press that he was too cautious a commander didn't alarm Eisenhower, but just wearied him. Quote, it wearies me to be thought as um, timid when I've had to do things that were so risky as to be almost crazy, he wrote on the 7th of February 1944, probably thinking of the attacks on Salerno and Pantelleria. Early in 1944, he complained in his diary, they dislike to believe, talking about the British press again, they dislike to believe that I had anything particularly to do with the campaigns, um, to the, with, the, with the campaigns. They don't use the words initiative and boldness in talking of me, but often do in speaking of Monty. And then he wrote, oh hum. <laughs> the 
hide of a pachyderm is necessary to a great commander. And Eisenhower had one. He was outwardly calm in every crisis, something that he learned from his period, I believe, in the Philippines. He spent the whole of the last half of the 1930s in the Philippines, which he described as, quote, learning dramatics under Douglas MacArthur. Um, The secret of Eisenhower's success can be summed up in two words, success um, up until his his, uh, um, great period of, uh, of promotion during the war, and those two words are George Marshall. whose protege he was. Having been a major for 16 years when Marshall discovered him, Eisenhower then ascended from lieutenant colonel to five-star general in only 42 months, uh, an average of six months between promotions. Of course, the regular officers in the pre-war army did see rapid promotion. In 1939, there were only 15,000 officers in the US Army, By 1944, there were 1,300 generals. Um, But it wasn't all easy for Eisenhower. In January 1943, a month before the defeat at uh, Kazarine Pass, the relative lack of success in North Africa after the initially successful Operation Torch um, led his aide, Harry Butcher, to write, "His his neck is in a noose and he knows it. And Patton, to tell his diary after dinner with Eisenhower, that Eisenhower thinks his thread is about to be cut. Soon afterwards, Eisenhower wrote to his son John, quote, it will not break my heart and it should not cause you any mental anguish. Modern war is a very complicated business and governments are forced to treat individuals as, pr- as pawns. I was about to say prawns. <laughs> <So sorry. laughs> um, he knew, that, he knew that as well as anyone, and after reassigning his friend, General Lloyd um, Fredendall of uh, two US Corps, after Rommel defeated him in Tunisia, Eisenhower wrote to his replacement, uh, George, to Fredendall's um, replacement, George Patton, this matter frequently calls for more courage than any other thing you'll have to do, but I expect you to be perfectly cold-blooded about it. If he couldn't always sack a general, Eisenhower could sometimes damn them with faint praise. He never liked uh, Lieutenant General Jacob L. Devers. And when, in early 1945, Marshall asked Eisenhower to place in order of value all of the senior generals in the European Theater of Operations, he ranked Devers, uh, the commander of 6th Army Group, 24th. Eisenhower had a good deal of common sense and much emotional intelligence, something that wasn't the case with a surprisingly large number of World War II commanders. Montgomery belittled the American contribution to the Battle of the Bulge at a press conference. Patton slapped two soldiers suffering from shell shock and was generally unhinged uh, by the end of his life. MacArthur had no concept of how others saw him. Mountbatten tried to sack General Slim, the best and most beloved general in the British Army in World War II. Eisenhower, meanwhile, showed perfect and mature judgment throughout campaign after campaign. Quote, it is impossible to read Eisenhower's correspondence 
um, notes Corelli Barnett, without being impressed with the good sense, energy, and all-round capacity and capability with which he applied to problems ranging widely from inter-allied policy to inter-allied relations to military discipline, training, and tactics, and to logistics, especially the available lift by road and air. That said, Ike has been criticised for his dealings with Admiral Francois Darlon, uh, the Vichy commander in North Africa, who he officially recognised as the High Commissioner there, effectively supporting the um, Vichy appointment over the French, Pétain's Vichy appointment, over the French, Free French or direct allied occupation. In retrospect, I believe him to have been right, uh, to have put operational efficiency over ideological purity. Eisenhower had something of a um, uh, love-hate relationship with um, France and the French, uh, like so many of um, the English-speaking peoples. Um, in, June, in June 1954, at dinner with Churchill at the White House, he described the French as, quote, a hopeless, helpless mass of protoplasm. Um, as this happened after the war, it's strictly speaking outside the parameters of this lecture on Ike's war leadership. Um, but as an Englishman, I think it's fair to repeat his description of the French as a hopeless, helpless mass of protoplasm. <laughs> Eisenhower was a decision maker. It was he who signed off on all the major planning decisions for Operation Overlord, which was easily the largest and most complicated multinational tri-service amphibious landings in the history of mankind. Yet despite the pressure of having tens of thousands of lives hanging on his decisions, he kept his sense of humour. Sense of humour and a great faith, he wrote, or else a complete lack of imagination are essential to sanity. He had enough imagination to think the unthinkable and to write out a communique that would state in the event of D-Day being a disaster, quote, the troops, the air and the navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty can do. If blame attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. MacArthur, in his evaluation of Eisenhower in 1932, wrote that he was, quote, distinguished by forced judgment and willingness to accept responsibility. After the original attack date of the 5th of June for Day Day had to be postponed the very day before, on the 4th of June, Eisenhower had to take the decision on the 5th of June as to whether to launch the invasion on the 6th, on the basis of a British meteorolog uh, meteorologist who stated that the 6th of June would have fine weather, which would then worsen after that vital day. This is a decision I alone can take, Eisenhower told his staff. After all, that is what I'm here for. We will sail tomorrow. He was smoking four packets of cigarettes a day uh, at the time, and in July had a blood pressure of 176 over 110. Um, that represents high-risk stage two hypertension, yet none of his troops would ever have noticed it. After the battles of Caen and the Falaise Gap came the great debate between the broad front uh, versus the narrow front uh, thrust strategy for the next stage of the campaign. In brief, Montgomery wanted to use the logistic reserves and part of Bradley's 12th Army Group to join his own 21st Army Group to send a 40-divisional strong force north of the Ardennes and capture the Ruhr in a narrow but fast thrust that would deprive Germany of its manufacturing base. In Eisenhower's defense, there were three great 
rivers in Holland, the Rhine, the Maas, and the Waal, that had not been crossed, and the whole of the rest of the front would need to have halted if Monty was to get his way. Furthermore, by the end of September, continued German resistance along the Atlantic Wall meant that only the ports of Cherbourg and Antwerp were in Allied hands, and as we've seen earlier, the latter was unusable due to the Germans on the Scheldt, and only one Mulberry Harbour was still operational. Any narrow thrust, therefore, would be in danger of being attacked from, flou- from flanking counterstrokes, even of being cut off completely and surrounded. While the Germans um, were showing in the Ardennes in December 1944 that they had still plenty of, left of, uh, plenty of fight left in them. Eisenhower even suspected, as he told Marshall, that Montgomery was only making the proposal based, wait, uh, quote, based on wishful thinking, unquote, and to commandeer the maximum amount of resources possible. Another factor, the fear of Patton doing the mirror opposite manoeuvre further south, might also have motivated Monty. Nonetheless, despite Eisenhower's clear-sighted view of Montgomery's motives, he did authorise Montgomery's disastrous market garden operation that destroyed the British First Airborne Division in Arnhem in late September in a smaller version of what might well have happened to Monty's narrow thrust into the Ruhr. At 10 Downing Street in late 1944, at a conference with Churchill and the British chiefs, including Brooke, Eisenhower explains the logic behind his broad front strategy in contrast to the narrow single thrust advocated by Brooke and Montgomery. And Brooke used the same phrase that he had used two years earlier very successfully at the Casablanca conference, I flatly disagree. Um, But now Eisenhower marshaled all his facts and out-argued Brooke to everyone's satisfaction. Um, except Brooke, and his uh, always readable but often very poisonous diary. The broad front strategy approach was finally vindicated by late March 1945, by which time all German resistance west of the Rhine had been pulverized into submission. Back on the 8th of March, Eisenhower confirmed 21st Army Group crossing the Rhone at, uh, sorry, the Rhine at Wesel. Um, it's well worth going to if any of you um, are near Wesel. It's a, it's a wonderful site, the place where the uh, 21st crossed, uh, crossed the Rhine on the 24th of March, but also Jacob Deaver's Sixth Army Group initiating operations in the Tsar, which um, would establish bridgeheads over the Rhine in the Mainz-Mannheim sector. This involved General Patch breaking through the Siegfried Line and taking part in a massive pincer movement, with Patton's 3rd Army attacking towards the Rhine near Koblenz, which managed to surround the German 7th Army and take 107,000 prisoners. In all, Eisenhower's strategy resulted in the capture of 280,000 German prisoners. And in Corelli Barnett's belief, and indeed mine, this completely vindicated Eisenhower's broad front strategy so persistently opposed by Montgomery and Brooke. With Bradley's 12th Army Group thrusting towards Frankfurt and German industry effectively no longer producing armaments for the Reich, it was only a matter of time before Germany surrendered. At the end of March, this last great Anglo-American strategic argument, the last one um, of the war, took place when Eisenhower wanted to agree with Stalin a line from Erfurt through Leipzig to Dresden for the junction of the Anglo-American forces with the Red Army. Churchill and Montgomery wanted to take advantage of the German collapse in the West to cross the Elbe and advance as far eastward as possible, even possibly taking Berlin. Churchill wanted this for political reasons. The Russians were about to take Vienna, and if they took Berlin too, he argued to a dying Roosevelt on the 1st of April, it would lead them into a mood 
uh, quote, lead them into a mood which will raise grave and formidable difficulties in the future. At that point, Red Army forces were 45 miles from Berlin, while Eisenhower's were 250. A race to Berlin would have been extraordinarily costly, and under the Western, uh, unless the Western powers were willing to face down the Red Army and rip up the Yalta agreements, which was politically unthinkable at that time, it was ultimately worthless. FDR was not trying to make Russia great again. Um, uh, unlike other statesmen uh, one might mention, uh, but as a foreigner, uh, this isn't the week to intrude on private grief. <laughs> That's not to say that Eisenhower got everything right by any means. When he left the uh, Mediterranean theatre to command the invasion of France, he told reporters that Hitler was going to write off this southern front, and I don't think he was going to defend it for long. Of course, generals need to be upbeat when speaking to journalists, but much more culpably, on September the 5th, 1944, he told his diary, the defeat of the German armies is complete, over eight months before it was. FDR chose Eisenhower as Supreme Allied Commander in January 1944, both because he was, quote, a, national, a natural leader, unquote, but also someone with, quote, exceptional political instincts, unquote. If this lecture series um, has, I hope, taught anything, it is that generals also need to be statesmen, and in wartime, politicians have to be strategists, because there's no set divide between um, politics and strategy in modern war, any more than there was in ancient times when the post of strategos or general in 5th century BC Athens implied political leadership as well as naval or military. Eisenhower was ideal in both roles, as his successful presidency also shows. In the spring of 1944, Eisenhower wrote to his wife Mamie, uh, they were the only letters that he didn't uh, dictate, wondering, quote, how many youngsters are gone forever? A man must develop a veneer of callousness that lets him consider such things dispassionately. But it was only ever, ladies and gentlemen, a veneer. Eisenhower was a fundamentally decent man. Engraved over his tomb in Abilene, Kansas, which is only 20 miles from the geographical center of this country, interestingly, are the words he wrote at London's Guildhall a month, uh, sorry, he spoke at London's Guildhall a month after D-Day when he said, Humility must always be the portion of any man who, who receives a claim earned in the blood of his followers and the sacrifices of his friends. After General Alfred Yertel signed the unconditional surrender at Eisenhower's headquarters in Ram, Ike wrote with admirable humility, accuracy, and some terseness to the combined chiefs of staff to say, quote, the mission of this allied force was fulfilled at 0241 local time, May 7th, 1945. Marshall replied, you have commanded with outstanding success the most powerful military force that has ever been assembled. You have made history, great history for the good of all mankind. And you have stood for all we hope for and admire in an officer of the United States Army. Notwithstanding the occasionally justified and uh, objective uh, criticisms of some modern historians, and to a far lesser extent, the much more subjective sniping of his contemporaries and rivals, there is not one word of Marshall's estimation that needs to be altered today over 70 years after it was written. You have stood for all we hope for and admire in an officer of the United States Army, deserves to be the settled, historical verdict on Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was one of the very greatest leaders 
in your country's history. Thank you very much. <clears throat> We've got a number of, um, um, of questions uh, which I've asked to um, be given to me with the easiest ones first. Um, actually, that's not true at all. Um, first question, what was the relationship between Eisenhower and Churchill? Um, what a great question. Uh, the subject of could be the subject of an extremely good book, which um, for some reason hasn't been written yet, um, but uh, I'm sure it will be any minute um, before I get round to it. Uh, it was um, it was very friendly, very personally friendly. Um, but Churchill treated Ike like he treated all the other chiefs of staff. He was perfectly willing to um, to row with him, to um, to um, shout, and um, if he had any hair, he'd have pulled it out. Uh, he was he was willing to cry um, in order to try to get his way. Um, it, he was um, he he gave um, Eisenhower the full Churchill, um, and. Um, it was, um, and Eisenhower was respectful in the way that a, uh, a soldier of one country needs to be to the prime minister of another. But he too was steely in his um, in his uh, desire to get his way. And so it was a it, it was a really fine working relationship, a fine personal relationship. It went up and down constantly with regard to the arguments that they were having. Um, but, um, but both of them um, come out well. And of course, the, um, the relationship after the war is also a fascinating one where um, uh, the roles were, were very much reversed and Eisenhower had become the leader of the free world and Churchill was effectively trying to suck up to um, Eisenhower. Uh, and that too would make a very interesting part, uh, second part of this as yet unwritten brilliant book. Um, <laughs> Who did Ike believe to be the most formidable ger German general and why? Um, I don't know. I'm so sorry. Gosh, you can't give me questions that I don't know the answers to. Uh, that's appalling. Um, he, um, he admired, we know he admired um, Rommel and Guderian. Um, he um, had problems with, um, with Rundstedt, who of course did escape from the Feller's Gap. Um, he was um, a... Um, a qualified admirer of the of the um, generals on the Eastern Front, he hadn't ever had to come up against Manstein himself, uh, who most military historians today believe to have been the greatest of the German generals. Uh, so I would be fascinated if everybody knows the answer. Uh, please come up afterwards as you all queue up to buy my book, um, and uh, and and tell me the answer to that extremely um, uh, good. Irritatingly, a good question. <laughs> Given the role that George Marshall played in World War II and how he advanced Eisenhower's career, why do you think Ike abandoned Marshall when Joe McCarthy tarnished Marshall's reputation? Um, that came up, of course, in my last speech in the Marshall, um, in the Marshall uh, speech. Um, ladies and gentlemen, um, I hardly need to tell you this week that politics is a very... Um, unpleasant game sometimes and that unfortunately was the reason that uh, that he did um, um, Eisenhower 
was um, was a very brave man, very brave man morally as well as uh, physically. But on this occasion, I'm afraid he he funked it terribly. Number one, uh, what, somebody's put in two questions on one piece of paper. Uh, here we go. What was Eisenhower thinking on the question of whether World War II could have been avoided? He very much did go down the Churchillian um, route, as I think many, uh, if not most, American um, American politicians did that the work that World War II could have been avoided if um, Britain and France had been uh, tougher in the um, against Adolf Hitler early on. He um, writes to is it Butcher or Harry Butcher or maybe Mamie, uh, one or the other, about how the weakness of the appeasers had led to World War II. It's a um, uh, it's a very um, uh, very intellectually sustainable argument. Um, did Churchill, number two, did Churchill believe that World War II could have been avoided? Um, he wrote an entire book on that subject, uh, which I do recommend. The first uh, book uh, called The Gathering Storm, one of um, Churchill's best books. And, um, and it's really entirely about how World War II could have been avoided. So the answer to that is definitely yes, if we had been, um, if we'd been stronger against Hitler in the 1930s. Uh, last question. Um, how did Eisenhower, the CEO and manager, not a warfighter, influence future generals? How do today's US generals compare to Ike? Um, Eisenhower um, influenced future generals um, in, in many ways. First of all, of course, he appointed many of them in the, um, uh, in the 19. 40s. Um, he was a um, he was a great. Or when I say appointed, he he brought them brought them up. Um, he uh, he pushed them forward. Um, he's also influencing future generals today because his um, his uh, strategies are taught at uh, U.S. Army war colleges and um, and of course are, are read by um, by military men. How does he compare to, um, to present-day generals? Well, look, I, I, this, this question comes up all the time, and the answer has to be contingent on the fact that he was in charge of 4.5 million Americans and 1 million um, uh, Britons, Canadians, uh, Free French, and so on. It was an army that was so much bigger. It was a theater of operations that was so much bigger. It was a global um, conflict. Um, so it really is terribly difficult for an, a, a, um, a military historian to equate chalk with cheese um, in this, uh, on this occasion. However, when one looks at the, um, at the personalities involved, uh, when one looks at his way of dealing with his staff, of dealing with um, Congress, of dealing with his um, his squabbling generals, um, and I, I do hope that one of the things you've taken away from this lecture is that um, is that albeit they were giants in their own way, but also men like Patton and Bradley and um, and Monty were like sixteen-year-old squabbling schoolgirls. And this man uh, had to bring them all together to point them in the right direction, i.e. against the enemy rather than against each other, um, and, to, and to lead and command them. And uh, in that, uh, he, was, he was a very great man. 
and I think that uh, that um, many U.S. generals would uh, would appreciate. I mean, in fact, I know they do appreciate that, and uh, and and therefore learn from him in that respect as well. So um, there are really only five questions from all of you. That's very um, uh, reticent, um, but. Um, now, maybe I covered absolutely everything, and it was a totally <laughs> comprehensive uh, speech, and I, that's the way I'm going to look at it anyhow. Um, uh, but um, before, I, um, before I finish my uh, penultimate, um, penultimate uh, lecture, can I give you an unashamed plug for the next one, owing to the fact that it's going to be on uh, Wednesday the 12th of April, for all of you who've brought your diaries along. It's going to be about... Somebody who I'm told that Americans don't know uh, particularly well. They've heard of him because, of course, he was played by Laurence Olivier uh, opposite uh, Vivian Lee um, in uh, Winston Churchill's favourite uh, movie, That Hamilton Woman, which, um, which was made in 1941 and which Churchill watched 17 times, uh, crying pretty much all the way through. Um, but it's, um, it's a story, Admiral Nelson, of a truly inspirational leader, um, a man who was profoundly uh, disabled. He had one eye and one, um, and one arm, and yet he was also the prophet of the principle of unrelenting attack, 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 attack. He sank the French fleet of the, um, the French, uh, the protoplasmic um, French, uh, <laughs> at the Battle of uh, Trafalgar, one of the one of the most decisive um, uh, naval battles in history, and he also had the most fabulously scandalous sex life. Ladies and gentlemen, he has it all. Please can I see you all on the 12th of April. Thank you very much indeed. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're always thrilled to have such a great audience. Thank you, Andrew Roberts, so much for another wonderful talk. And please stay for the book signing. Our museum store is on the 77th Street side. Andrew Roberts will be signing on the Central Park West side. And have a great night. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>